This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we're talking with Luca Chancel, who is a French economist who works on two huge issues, social justice and inequality. And unlike most people, he's bringing them together, mm-hmm. making us think about them together. Yeah. And you're going to want to start following this guy. He's, he's young, but you're going to hear more and more of him as the I years go on. I really think so. Yeah, I think so. Let's get into it. Okay, so today we've got Luca Chancel, who is an economist um, in France, and he specializes in inequality and environmental policy. Uh, his work focuses on measuring economic inequality. I learned a lot about measurement um, and then the, all the sort of ins and outs of measurement uh, in, in your book, um, and then how that interacts with sustainability. Um, he is the co-director of the World Inequality Lab and of wide.world, uh, which is the World Inequality, Inequality Database, I believe that's what, what, what it is, um, at the Paris School of Economics. So we're really excited to have him on today to discuss his book. It was first published in French in 2017. The new English translation just came out with Harvard University Press this year. It's called Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice, and the Environment. What a topic. All right. So, um, Luca, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so you're part of a cohort of economists. The most famous for Americans is probably Thomas Piketty, um, who, with whom you've co-authored a number of works uh, that are concerned with the problem of inequality or maybe better put, you frame it as a problem, whereas other um, perhaps more traditional economists see it as a sort of quote unquote, natural feature, an even positive feature of market economics. Um, one kind of question that I have is kind of a maybe just a strange question, but there seems to be an overrepresentation of French economists working on this topic. Um, and is there an ideological reason for that in terms of the training of economists in France? Or is this a sort of generational concern because we've got you know, a generation of economists who are coming of age post 1980s when we're seeing these spikes in inequality? Or, you know, is it a byproduct of the French Revolution, which has equality as part of the, you know, liberty, equality and fraternity? You know, to be honest, it's true that there are, you know, a few French economists studying, working, measuring inequality, uh, you know, working currently. At the same time, you know, one of the founding, you know, uh, fathers of this of this discipline is uh, Tony Atkinson, who sadly passed away uh, a few years back. And Tony Atkinson is is a British uh, is a British economist, and and so we also are very. Um, uh, blessed by the fact that today dozens and dozens of researchers all over the world are contributing to this collective collaborative effort of better tracking, better measuring, better understanding the roots of inequality. And so I would I would not say that it's just about, you know, a few guys in, in France. It's really now, you know, a hun- more than 150 researchers that contribute to this global project that we've launched uh, here in association with the World Inequality Lab. 
Okay. Okay. So global, global effort. All right. Um, so you pack a tremendous amount into this book and, it, and it's, a, and it's a short book yet. It is sort of jam packed with, uh, lots of things, very readable, um, everything from explaining Gini coefficients to the enclosure process and the destruction of the commons, um, the, and which leads to this, as you argue, is a sort of turning point in the commodification of nature. Um, there's a really interesting point that I did not really know about, uh, about Francois Mitterrand and his government uh, as promoting financial liberalization as a way to advance the middle class that was that was uh, you know socialist government doing that um and then you sort of end with these various policy initiatives or, or proposals that things that could could maybe work now there's no way we can get to all of that but maybe you could sketch out some of the general problems and so the first question that i have um, is a sort of fundamental one which is something that is kind of unique in your approach as far as i've seen which is you're saying that we should look at economic inequality and environmental sustainability together, not separately. So could you sort of describe the sort of and in between those two things, right? Those two categories of inequality and sustainability? Right. You know, I, I think with um, the way we've approached these issues uh, until very recently is looking at two things that were separate. So we've looked at both, you know, in 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 uh, in the academia and both in the realm of public policy, you know, policy discussions about these topics, as two things that you know were not connecting with one another, and this this led to very concrete things. For instance, when you think about uh, the the Millennium Development Goals, which is really the key global policy institutions and set of of uh, you know objectives and impetus to, to, to bring global poverty to zero, the Millennium Development Goals of the 2000s were basically almost blind to the ecological discussion. And at the same time, it's not as if we were not aware that there were some ecological problems because we also had at the same time, you know, the Kyoto Protocol or the Conference of Parties, the climate change conferences, which were just another cycle of global conferences or global discussions, but that was not really connected with the Millennium Development Goals with global poverty reduction processes. And I think that in the mid 2010, so 2015, there's a kind of renewal of this of, of the of these discussions of the way to think about these issues, and a realization or the beginning of a realization that in fact, if you really want to solve the climate problem and the environmental degradation issue, you have to factor in the social dimension. Otherwise, you've, you'll always face you know, tensions, for instance, when you implement environmental policies, or you will not really go to the end of your environmental policies because at some point it's also about some social things that you need to deal with. And conversely, if when you do some social policy making, when you try to reduce extreme poverty in certain countries, or when you want to, to you know, think about social services or access to you know, certain forms of public goods in rich countries, well, you also need to factor in access to energy, uh, the quality of the environment, whether or not there is you know, air pollution, noise pollution. All this is also part of 
what you need to distribute or redistribute in the society. And there's also a lot of inequalities in access to good quality environment. And so the novelty is to start to discuss these things together. But I think that we still lack a lot of analysis and a lot of data, a lot of you know collective understanding of where we stand, how these uh, different worlds are in fact interrelated and how we can better you know, have a grasp on these on these complex uh, topics. So this is what I try to do in this book, to lay out what we know, what we've measured, what's still out there to be measured and to be understood, and lay out also a few ideas and policy proposals to move forward and to, yes, uh, try to reduce social and economic, but also environmental inequalities. And I try to you know, to redefine social inequalities as social plus environmental inequalities. Could you talk a little bit about, so you, you talk about these various sort of loops or, or vicious circles um, where inequality is effectively an impediment to sustainability and then the byproducts of environmental degradation then reanimate inequalities. Um, and intensify them. Could you talk about how that operates or give like an example of that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, try to describe this, this vicious, uh, cycle, vicious circle of, uh, you know, more environmental degradation that leads to potentially more inequality that in the end will fuel again, the level of environmental de degradation. One way to think about that is, is the following, for instance, um, so it's not pretty clear that you know climate change will have unequal impacts, and it's pretty clear that certain countries will be hit more than than others, and and these countries that will be hit hit more than others are you know subtropical countries, you know countries that are basically on average poorer than the rest. But it's also known that within countries, those who are going to be more impacted by Rising temperatures, uh, more floods, more heat waves, hurricanes are kind of very, very generally. It's it's not a you know hundred percent relationship, hundred percent correlation, but it's a very strong one nevertheless. Are those who are worse off, and so the worse off are more exposed, for instance, to hurricanes, tornadoes, because they live closer to areas that uh, in which these uh, these these events might are more likely to happen when you think about floods for instance you have and this is also the case in US cities and we've seen this very clearly when you know Katrina hit the New Orleans in 2005 uh, that you know most areas that were that have been surrounded by water were low income areas and this is you know the reality of the real estate market where you have the cheaper areas uh, that are closer to the river or that are, that are a bit less safe than, you know, the wealthier areas that are a bit more on the hills. And so this is true in, you know, most countries, at least with the, the amount of information that we have at hand. So one could think that solving the climate problem uh, is a way to reduce inequalities in the future. But at the same time, um, when, you know, we do not factor in the social dimension, the social reflection in how we do policy making, this might lead to uh, movements that are averse to climate change policy making. 
And there's a very clear case, you know, in the French Yellow Vest movement two years ago, for instance, where you have the government that wants to implement a carbon tax, but a part of the population says, look, you want to implement a carbon tax, but, you know, we have to put fuel in our cars to go to work. And those who live in the cities who have more money than us, they just take the metro, those rich Parisian wealthy guys, and they don't need to put oil in their car every morning. So there's an, an inequality here. And the worst is that at the same time, you are also reducing, this is by the way what the French government did at the same time, reducing a tax on wealth, on the very wealthy. And at the same time, the tax system in France and in so many countries in the world is such that if you take a plane from one place of your country to another place of your country or to another country, actually, you are not going to pay taxes on kerosene. So you have these working class people who do not take the plane to go on holidays, who are going to, to pay the carbon tax that others are not going to pay. And this creates tensions. And in the end, the French government had to um, basically um, cancel the implementation of this tax. And you see this kind of uh, way that debates are articulated in many countries. You've also seen that in the emerging world in Nigeria, You've seen this in Indonesia, for instance. Um, more, more recently in certain Latin American countries. And I think this discussion is also very present in the US. And when you have you know, President Trump going out of the Paris Climate Agreement on the ground, and he may have many other different motives in mind, but one of his arguments is that he wants to protect the American workers, in particular in the mining industries in particular in the you know, fracking or shale gas, shale oil industries. And so here you see that uh, basically you have this vicious cycle because a lot of inequality in society makes it impossible to implement these climate policies that would have ultimately benefited these low-income groups that in some cases are actually opposing the, the climate policies. And so by not addressing that, you are, in the end, exacerbating the kinds of tensions that we already observe and that might be, you know, exacerbated in a few years, in a few decades, when you really have the impacts of climate change hitting these communities. It's great. I mean, uh, thanks for that explanation of that angle of the Yellow Vest movement, because that, that's the spark, right, of, of the Yellow Vest movement which is basically they're pointing out how regressive the taxation scheme is, right? Right, right. That, that not only um, is this going to hurt a certain sector of society uh, much worse on one end, but ostensibly the sort of trickle-down effect, if you like, of cutting taxes at the very top is going to end up hurting social benefits, right? So it's like getting attacked from two directions. So given that, right, is there then a point that Donald, the Donald Trumps of the world um, are making, right? That, that, look, the short-term social pain that will be incurred by the imposition of these fancy think-tanked elite um, environmental policies does not really take into consideration the real damage to be, that will be done to you know, most people, because most people are poor, most people are working class and so on. 
Yes, we, we say in French that uh, space is horrified of void and a vacuum. And as soon as you have a vacuum, you have something that's going to fill it. And here I think the vacuum was, you know, a lot of thinking poured into how to avoid these situations, how to compensate for losers of environmental policy making. And for too long, we thought about environmental policies as something in which everybody would gain. And so if everybody is gaining from it, then you're not thinking about, okay, so there will be losers, both some who are very poor and who need to be compensated, but also there will be losers among those who have a lot of resources, of political and economic capital that you also need to factor in uh, the way you think about the political economy of reforms. And so this absence of reflection, of thinking of solutions on that really makes the path much easier for the Donald Trumps of this world to oppose uh, environmental policy making. And I think the U.S. withdrawal of the Paris Agreement is a very clear and, and you know, very concrete example of that. Tony, you want to jump in here? Yeah. It's so funny listening to you talk. It's like Amit and I, throughout this whole election cycle, and this is pre-even Joe Biden getting the nomination, we always debate this thing where it's like poor people and the lack of education and the ignorance and, and constantly almost voting against their own interests. And hearing you talk about it, it's interesting because, you know, you see Donald Trump talk about, you know, he, he, he almost flipped Pennsylvania convincing people Biden was going to shut down fracking. And I've never even met anybody that works in the fracking, you know, like, like, is this a big, is this a big industry? I mean, you know, and oil, we're going to shut down oil. And, and how do you battle that? I guess my question is, how do you, what's the answer? Is it education? Because it seems so easy to, to install fear in poor people and to quickly convince them to vote for something that really doesn't benefit them. Where, you know, as you said, if, if people, were to go in a different direction, even though it may seem like you may lose jobs, it's actually going to benefit you in the long run. How do you, it sounds like an impossible task to try to get that message across. And if you could get that message across, you would be in office forever because if you could somehow awaken the poor um, and get them to vote, you would have control of everything. But people, people can't seem to do it. And I wonder, you know, what your view on that is. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tony. I think, you know, I think the good news is that, you know, uh, there are solutions to that. And uh, in one way is, is to make environmental policies benefit, you know, the working class, the middle class, not only in the long run, because as Keynes used to say, in the long run, we're dead, but also in the very short run. And the good news is that we have several examples where this is exactly what happened. And this is exactly how these environmental and social policies became to be well supported and you know were, were just effective in the end so in the in the case of pennsylvania first i think first element there is an overrepresentation of the mining industry in swing states in the u.s and we when you see the margins by which biden wins or trump wins you see the importance even of a few dozen mm -hmm. thousand votes of these industries, um, and and it, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, 
of course, you know, there's a lot of misinformation in the in these campaigns, and we've seen we've seen this with the with the Donald Trump campaign in, in particular. At the same time, I do think that in the case of the U.S., the Democrats still have quite some work to do in order to really convince those mining industry workers that they will be compensated. That you know, perhaps the industry will evolve, perhaps. Their jobs won't be exactly right. the same, but you know we have this uh, this discussion also in France when you are closing a nuclear plant. This doesn't mean that you're going to lose your job, because when you're closing a nuclear plant, you have 30 years during which you have to basically work on the plant to make sure that the whole thing just doesn't blow off in the in the next 30 years. So that's just one way through which you can convince people that actually jobs will still be there in the same territory, in the same community for quite many years to come. And we need to develop these kinds of arguments and these need to be very sound and to be convincing because in the end, even if there's a lot of lies, even if there's a lot of misinformation, I, I don't think that you know people are dumb. I think that they vote often quite rationally and so sometimes there is, you know, you, you're voting on one part of what, you know, Donald Trump is going to say and the other part may not benefit you, but at least one part is kind of pretty rational. And in the context of climate change, in the short run, I think that so far we don't have enough compensation mechanisms for these people that might be hit by a very strong and aggressive climate policy, which is, by the way, also what we need. But again, there are very different ways to do environmental policy making. Yeah, and and I would guess as as a just a a follow up, would you say consistency is a big part of of that? Because I think getting people to vote for something that they may think is against their best interest, you can't get them to vote if you've been um, doing wrong by them for decades. So I think that at least in this country is is a that's the reckoning the Democrats are having right now. Is it's always big talk. And even though they do get, you know, social issues pushed further, um, it's never really quite enough because they like to stay right in the center. And you can see that by who's our president right now. And it's anyone is better than Trump. I mean, I would vote for the chair I'm sitting on over Trump. But, you know, what what they rallied behind was probably the safest person on the Democratic primary stage, probably the most center person who in, in most of his policy historically goes right. Um, so that's not going to really help four years from now, right? Because now we have four years to actually try to do something. But I don't know that Biden will we'll see, but I don't know that Biden's that guy. And then in four years from now, you get to, if it's Trump running again, God forbid, or the next loony, it's, see, they did it again. You keep trusting them and nothing's changed. They, there's no new jobs. They're, the economy's tanking. And really what we keep inheriting is horrible Republican uh, policy. And and it's not uh, our view, at least my view, and I think Ahmed is too, is that we're never really extreme enough on the left side to like really radically change it to show we stand for something. And I think that is a big case with the environment. I mean, I think you saw with the primaries, you would see Bernie Sanders when he was asked, he would say the most important thing uh, or, or the, the, the most dangerous thing to our society is climate change. That's number one. Um, but 
the rest of them couldn't do that. And I think that says a lot. And until we get to that place, I don't know. I don't have high hopes. <laughs> so if I can add on to yeah. Tony's question, um, in and there's a section in your book where you talk about this, Luca, where where there's a very powerful argument out there that, that Joe Biden is a representative of, uh, which is that economic liberalization is an unqualified social good because globally it it produces this sort of leveling amongst um, lower skilled workers across the earth, right? That the sort of the deterritorialization of the of manufacture and production allows for this this leveling. Um, so what's the retort to that, right? That even if it might cause um, uh, a, a decrease in the standard of living or wages and things like that in richer countries, it's raising them in 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 what were poorer countries. So, and and I think there's a sort of Democrat Republican in in America consensus around that, um, a very large consensus. And I and I see uh, uh, Biden as a sort of embodiment of that view. Um, what is the sort of response to that? that argument? Because I, I guess you could sort of point to some data saying that, yeah, that's true with this X industry in the Philippines, they're doing this and they used to make this and but for this industry, now they're making more. I think, you know, I think the, the response to that was so far Trump, you know, the guy who basically right. said that, you know, trade can actually be very bad for some people is Trump. And you have this kind of consensus among, you know, a big part of the economics profession, a big part of the policymaker that policymakers that, you know, there was just one way to globalize. There was just one way to organize globalization. And this is the way we've, we've basically pursued with the, uh, with the world uh, uh, trade organization over the past 30 years. And in fact, this is the real danger of policies that proclaim themselves as the only alternative as the only possible alternative. At some point, people say, well, actually, no, that just can't be the case. And someone is going to be uh, the message carrier, the voice carrier of these of these legitimate claims. So that being said, you know, I, th- I, I do still think that uh, we can continue to live in an open world and at the same time protect the environment and protect, you know, our... Uh, social, uh, you know, the, the level of social progress that we've attained until now. But this means radically rethinking and reviewing how we open our economies. Uh, there's one argument here that I would like to make, which is to me very important. And this is very much data driven. And this is why I also try to give a lot of importance to data in this book. And this is what we try to do you know, with my colleagues, Thomas Piketty and this network of researchers is trying to ground economics in facts. And for too long, you know, we've been discussing about theories without a lot of interest in what's actually happening. So when the theories were not explaining the world properly, basically there was this temptation to say that the problem is with the world, not with the economic model. <laughs> and, so, and so that's why data is so important. <laughs> and what do we see? we see that Europe and the US opened more or less in the same way, at the same rate, uh, with the same level of magnitude to trade with low-income countries, Europe and the US between 1980 and today. And at the same time, what you see, you see this explosion 
this formidable explosion of inequalities in the U.S., and you see a rise in, in, in Europe, but much, much, much more contained. So that's already one way to say that there are different ways to basically open, to adapt your social systems to globalization, and that you can't say that it's you know globalization in trade and services that automatically is going to basically completely mess up your society. That's already one piece of the puzzle, which I think is very important. And the same general message, I think, can be said with technologies. You know, there's this temptation in the US, I think, a lot in public policy debates to say, yeah, for sure, inequalities, you know, oh, you know, these billionaires, but at the same time, tech. You know, now we have the iPhones. You know, now we have all these great technological devices that we didn't have 20 years ago. Well, guess what? We also have these devices uh, in Europe. So it's true that we do not have the Silicon Valley uh, in Europe, but we do have a lot of new tech, of high-tech industries that are very competitive in the global scale. And we don't observe in European firms the level of dispersion of wages between the CEO and the bottom worker. And so it's also wrong to say that this surge in inequality in the US is just due to technology and to globalization. No, European is a very good, you know, counterfactual, which says there are different ways to organize all that. And if we want to move further, because we also, in Europe, we also witness this increase in inequalities, I think really it's to realize that um, we cannot continue to sign trade deals, and we, and we are actually continuing to sign them, Europe with Mercosur, with Latin American, Central American countries at the moment. Europe recently signed a treaty uh, of free trade with Canada, for instance. And you have, you know, these treaties that continue to be signed between, you know, uh, pass uh, some Pacific area countries very recently. It's the idea that if you want to have trade in services and goods, you need to have a set of minimum fiscal, social, and environmental rules. Otherwise, this is when things start to mess up. And you need, you know, transfer of information of who owns what. This is to track financial flows. This is to prevent tax evasion. This is to prevent, you know, fraud in when you pay taxes. You also need to have things like carbon taxes within countries or carbon taxes at the border of countries to make sure that you cannot delocalize pollution to other countries thanks to your free trade agreement. And this may sound fairly evident, fairly, you know, very simplistic, but in fact, this is really the opposite of what has been implemented over the past 30 years. So the, again, the good news is that we can still do quite a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the major takeaways um... And I've always sort of thought about this uh, with inequality. When you see inequality, like say in New York City, you know, Tony and I you both used to live in New York City for many years, and there's obviously a huge homelessness problem there. Yet there's all of these empty apartments, right? So, so that is obviously a choice, right? There's a choice to to allow for that. Even there's a remedy, the ready remedy, but there are sort of market pressures and ideologies at work that allow for the continuity of the sort of tragedy of homelessness, right? Um, so in the same way, so I guess, you know, what what you're proposing, and maybe we can talk about some of the sort of the, the nitty gritty of maybe like your, what, if you could wave a magic wand, what top three things <laughs> would you would you say have to come with every trade deal or, or, or and so on? But 
how do you summon the political will? Because you're, I think you're exactly right. In your book, I think you talk about how, you know, uh, German CEOs make a full like 50% less than American CEOs, but obviously they're just as efficient and their firms are thriving. It would be hard to say that they're 50%, you know, less efficient. Um, so it's much more about, you know, levels of distribution, um, social cushioning um, for when you lose your job and things like that. In America, we've got a very sort of threadbare social safety net. So how might one sort of, in your view, sort of summon political will to get, say, these top three mm. things you would, you would advocate? I, for me, the, you know, the first thing is really about, um, you know, the realm of ideas. And, you know, before, you know, being able to change the policymaking, you need to change perhaps the frame in which these debates about policies is um, how, how this frame is, is done and, and what constitutes, uh, you know, what are acceptable ideas and what are non-acceptable ideas. And this is what, you know, some have called ideologies or ideological regimes. And this changes over time. And let's remember, for instance, that, you know, super high progressive taxation was just considered as normal under democratic command or republican command in the U.S., from basically the 1930s to the 1970s. And you had the U.S. being, you know, you know, land of the free people and in free enterprise, but that was taxing its super rich at a rate, you know, that no other country, country on earth with a mixed economy regime was actually doing. Um, so mm -hmm. this set of ideologies evolve over time. And I think one way to, you know, have these discussions and always recognize that this is always something that needs to be debated is to have more information out there. So we need to increase the amount of information and inequality. We need to increase the transparency of our economic statistics. We need to dis distribute economic indicators because, you know, talking about averages is really one way that benefits the very few people at the top that are capturing most of the growth but if you talk about average growth and not inequality, well, in a way, implicitly people will think that everybody's benefiting from this growth, except, you know, the majority of the gains that ca are captured by a fraction of the population. So the first thing, whether it's in research or it's when we sign these trade agreements, we need more transparency. And so no more signing trade deals or no more publication of GDP numbers without more transparency about who gains what. And so, you know, you have this proposal in the U.S., so this is also to show that some things are going in the right direction. And I'm relatively optimistic overall, or let's say pessimistic by reason, optimistic by will, as some used to, used to say. But in the U.S., you have this uh, proposal that was uh, carried by, I think, the, uh, the Senate minority leader, uh, about producing distributed national accounts. So that's inequality GDP numbers every year when you have the BEA producing its numbers. So that's one way to move forward. Uh, but then let's not be naive. More information isn't going to be sufficient. And you also need to come up with a toolkit, you know, so that policymakers, campaign organizers, people can, you know, uh, have something to propose when, when, when you campaign. And 
And, and then for me, it's, you know, uh, it falls in two categories. The first one is really going to be about investments in public services. And that's, you know, one way to also counter the kind of, you know, movement that we've had since Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s that basically said everything that comes from the state is inherently bad. It's in inherently inefficient. And in fact, it just reduces growth for everybody. And so we should scrap as much as possible any kind of financing of public, collective financing of public good. Well, here, the good thing, and we're not going, going to redo the debate about healthcare in the US. I'm sure that you had quite some time to discuss that over the past months in the context of this, of this election. But we know that, you know, a private way to organize healthcare is both very costly and very inefficient. And this is very clear when you compare the European model and the North American model, where basically in the US you spend two times more on healthcare and results are much, much worse than uh, in terms of life expectancy, in terms of, you know, number of cases of uh, drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not only about healthcare, it's also about access to education, access to, you know, public transportation, access to culture. There's, you know, there's a, a big, good, sound arguments to say that we need more investments in those. This will create both more growth, and more increasing standard of livings, and perhaps more importantly, growth that is not going to harm and damage the environment. Uh, because if you invest a lot of money into low-carbon public transportation, then you're basically hitting, you know, two birds with one stone. You you are securing, you know, well-paid job for some working-class people, for instance, uh, jobs that cannot be delocalized at the you know other end of the world because this is money you're investing at home, and this is also money you're investing at home to you know in many countries to prevent importing oil from other oil exporting regions. So investing in public services is you know. I think a really important social but also ecological policy. And just here, one example in Sweden, for instance. So the Swedes have the highest, you know, carbon tax in the world, and you know they are, you know, often, you know, uh, portrayed as these this country that has been doing, you know, pretty well in terms of environmental policies. What they what they've started to do very early in the 1970s is that they really invested in transforming their energy infrastructures. So basically, they, they changed the type of uh, energy heating networks that they had. They put pipes in their streets, I mean, under the, under the streets. And in these pipes, you can put uh, renewable energy from you know, renewable forests, for instance, that you're going to, to burn, replant. So the carbon uh, uh, cycle is neutral. You're not you're emitting carbon in the air, but then you're capturing it again when the trees are replanted. And this means that then people have an alternative. So basically now you have this, uh, and it's often public energy systems at the local level. So it's possessed by the municipalities, by the local uh, governments. That It means that then when the Swedish government is implementing a carbon tax, as a consumer, they have the choice to continue to use some kerosene heating device or to switch to these, this more efficient, uh, less costly, renewable energy source. And this is basically how it should be done. And if you don't have the alternative, then we're back to the discussion we had in the French context a few minutes back, where you're just going to say, 
why should I be taxed? I don't have any alternative, and I didn't get to choose the fact that I don't have an alternative. And so that's, I think, a, an interesting example where you need these, these strong investments and you know these big investments in infrastructure is also something that we know that it can be very good in a post-crisis environment. This is what happened during the New Deal, for instance, and this is precisely what lacked in Europe after the 2008 crisis. Perhaps a final example here in terms of investment of what I, or what I call social ecological investment in the emerging world is in Indonesia, where the government you know, started with a policy that uh, effect was to increase the price on fossil fuels. So a lot of people went out in the streets, as you see, as you've seen in other countries. And so it went on really bad at the beginning. But then the Indonesian government realized that you could couple this kind of policy that was actually uh, pouring some new money in the coffers of, uh, of the government and to actually use this money to invest in cash transfers for low-income households, to invest in educational investments, and to invest into the creation of a modern health, universal health uh, security system. And so here you have the birth of what we could call a social ecological state, or social ecological policies, and this actually worked. And you're, they are still still have a lot of issues to to deal with because it's a huge country and they lack you know some resources, but I think this is the the kind of general direction that we need to that we need to follow. So that was the second point, investment. But then how you know how do you finance these investments? So I mentioned one thing, which is you know tax pollution, in, and by taxing pollution you'll get some extra money, but it's not going to suffice. And so I think you need to tax both pollution and, you know, the very rich uh, much more than what we've been doing over the past 40 years. And here the general message is that this is not going to turn our economies into communism. This is more going to turn our economies to the kind of mixed economy regimes that we've that we know uh, have worked well, in fact, they've worked better if you just look at you know GDP numbers and GDP growth rates um, in the 1950s and 1960s. And then the the final argument, or the final counter argument, would be to say, yeah, but we can't. We just cannot tax you know capital in a globalized environment. It's so mobile. If you tax here, then people will delocalize at the end of the world. And here, I think we need to realize that you know this kind of messaging, this kind of way to think about policy is something that has been constructed by the very ones who've been benefiting from the, this ever-ended you know, ended race to reducing taxes on the very rich. And in fact, we can tax um, these, these, these profits much more than we've been doing over the past 30 years. Uh, some recent progress in terms of the exchange of information uh, between you know, international banks show that you know, things can be done. When the US um, tax administration told Swiss banks, you know, this is what Barack Obama and his administration did a few years back, uh, basically telling Swiss banks that, you know, okay, we know that for 100 years you have this uh, Swiss bank secrecy and it's part of your identity, but look, if you don't... Uh, if you don't stop with this secrecy, because this secrecy is harming us and we don't know who is evading taxes, 
you won't be able to trade anymore on American soil. And from one day to the next, you have you know Swiss banks that supposedly would never be able to uh, release information on their clients actually releasing this information. So, so basically you realize that, that there's a lot of things that can be done that we just haven't done because we thought they were impossible, but this was just, again, kind of ideology that was constructed and that we need to deconstruct if we want to move forward. I think that's a key point here is that the ideology, the ideological transformation is huge. In America, what we're up against is a view that public, you know, public goods can be privately enjoyed, mm. right? That being a healthy person, an educated person through, you know, public education and public uh, medicine um, is something that you actually do privately enjoy and helps you, you know, thrive in your life and so on. But because it's coming from the public, it's inherently tainted in some way, right? That therefore it has this whiff of, of, of socialism. Um, that ideological transformation seems to be happening in some quarters, right? Obviously, Bernie Sanders campaigns. Um, we've got uh, the squad in, in, in Congress um, who are all about mm -hmm. the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and things like that. Um, but then again, they're up against um, a lot of interests, as you pointed out, right? That, that, that there's, a, again, why are these, if the, all of these things are decisions, the big question is, is who's benefiting from the status quo, right? Who's, who's sort of reaping the benefits from this order? Um, I think, you know, one of the values of your book is, is kind of shows that actually if the status quo continues, everybody loses, you know, that, that the whole world, you know, is, and, and it's going to be uneven how um, the intensity of, um, the the crisis of environmental degradation will be experienced right because poorer people will experience it worse and so on but everybody's going to experience it right everybody is going to be touched by this um that kind of pointing to that I, and i've always had this critique of the environmental mu uh, movement with their rhetoric i think their rhetoric is terrible um that the save the earth rhetoric <laughs> because nobody cares, right? Nobody cares about, oh, you know, this tree or whatever. It's like save yourself. It's literally save yourself. It's not about saving the earth. The earth is indifferent to whether we come or go. Um, the It's it's really about saving society. I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on I, that? You know, I think this is really the, the, the core of the discussion we need to have here. And I think we need to at the same time, you know, thank, uh, you know, these, you know, environmentalists and, and this, you know, environmental, you know, movements over the world who've done this, you know, incredible amounts of efforts to, you know, protect, you know, environmental uh, rights over the past decades. And at the same time, I think, yes, exactly. We need to move on to a, you know, form of a discussion where people understand that uh, they will benefit in their own daily lives about these policies. And in fact, these are not environmental policies. These are social policies. We've called them environmental policies, but in fact, it's policy for them. It's policies for, you know, they Monday, their, their Monday, Monday morning when they go to work in a much easier transport infrastructure. And it's a policy for, you know, their weekends when they have, you know, better, you know, basically tap water in their homes. Right. And, right. and I think there's, there's a big, you know, 
issue in the US about the current state of public services. And the way I see it is that if you have public services, whether it's in education, whether it's basic infrastructure networks like energy or water, sanitation services, for instance, that are not working properly, when you're upper middle class, when you're upper class, you're not going to want to pay more taxes for these things to function. And so this creates this big divide where you have some people who, you know, more and more at the top of the distribution, more and more they want to uh, basically break away with the financing of these services that they do not see any interest in them. And at the same time, those at the bottom of the, of, of the distribution, they might be convinced that, you know, themselves, they also don't want to pay more taxes for things that are not functioning properly. So let's privatize everything. Right. So I think the solution is really to have, you know, this strong movement in investment into key public infrastructures that work where you can have quite rapidly uh, the realization that this is actually changing little parts of your daily lives in a positive way. I think that access to good quality water, uh, that access to good quality, I don't know, Wi-Fi networks, for instance, or good quality, low-cost energy, uh, these are the kind of things that public institutions should invest in, and they should, you know, public you know, uh, services should marketize a lot more. And I also discussed that in the book, that, you know, the, the, the public sphere is very bad at marketizing its own products. Right. It's very bad at right. marketizing the fact that, yes, you know, free access to education is essential. That free access to healthcare is also essential in, I'm here talking about the European context, where you have also a lot of pressure to basically, you know, finance less and less the, the, the public health sector and to privatize more and more because this is very costly, according to some voices. But to, yeah, to come back on your initial point, I think we need to frame, to reframe environmental policies as something that is going to change your, your daily lives in a better way. And this is something that we didn't really do uh, over the past decades. Yeah. yeah, this is, I don't know. Um, it might be something to do with how in like modern life we've sort of set nature up in our heads as this sort of separate thing. Um, I forget who made this argument. There's an argument sort of about the critique about the American um, creation of the national park system because what it did was sort of compartmentalize nature for something out there that, you know, you go enjoy for a moment, but then you don't sort of think about it, right? It's this sort of separate thing in our heads rather than thinking about how nature and human culture are always part of a larger ecology and have to be in balance and you know that that it's not a sort of it's a the the conservation movement weirdly commodifies nature for something to be enjoyed at discrete moments and then not never thought about again really yeah but does that feel like going for a hike but that would mean that before the parks people had a different view right the parks may have just saved (laughs) Some yeah, parts no, of our country, no, no. you know, I don't think no, people that's had true. that view it's, before the parks. I mean, I think it's it was, true that that's that that's also capitalism, equally, right? Equally, equally possible, right? That yeah. that's sort of this sort of savage capitalism that's just sort of taking over everything. That's obviously not good. Um, but in a weird way, right, that what is is 
a, a kind of a positive, right? That we have these this park system and stuff like that that's preserved. It also changes our view and allows us not to think about nature because that's taken care of. You know, it's it's not something that we're sort of continuously alive to, um, and and our situation now demands that. <laughs> yeah, but it's a reflection too of of who we. It's it's going to come down to we could have conversations, but it's just going to be voting the right people in office. I mean, money in politics is going to keep corrupting this system. It's going to keep pushing any progress down because it's not in the rich people's best interest, especially in this country, to be taxed. Um, apparently, you need billions and billions of dollars, and you just got to keep getting more of it to be happy here. Um, I think the only way this moves forward is you get an administration that just does it. Right. Like when Amit and I were kids, we threw stuff out the window in the car. You're finished with McDonald's, went out the window. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because they started fining you. We also didn't wear seatbelts when we were kids. I never wear a seatbelt. Now we all just are okay with wearing seatbelts. You know, we're we're in a we're in a place right now where there's a debate about but not masks. If I have to wear a mask. I mean, there's no I mean, talk about data. Data. I mean, you die you can die if you get the <laughs> COVID-19. But we've perverted the word freedom here where everything has to be a choice because that's how they've convinced these people that you're truly American is of I choose to do this. Yet you put your seatbelt on. You don't litter anymore. There's tons of stuff you don't do that's illegal because you'll go to jail or you get fined. The way for the climate and for progress to happen here is we just need an administration that does it. We need somebody to come in and go and get control of the Senate and go, we're taxing the rich. And guess who's going to really be really pissed? The rich people. And that's okay because like you said, Lucas, we're going to take that money immediately and reinvest it in poor communities so that they feel the impact of the rich people complaining. And they're like, oh, this is kind of great. That's the only way. I mean, there's we're never going to have the conversation. It's just we need people to do it and to lead by example and let that people. Sounds pretty it. authoritarian, Tony. Well, <laughs> it's not because You're jam it down. It's not because it's it's. I'm saying you vote the right people in, and yes, if you get control of the Senate and we decide what they've been doing it to us the whole time, where they're they're cutting them tax breaks. Yes, there is a reverse class war. Yeah, going so it's on. it's true. a it's just a reversal, which is not by force. It's just by majority. And, and by who we have in office. And I think if we just got the right people in that just did it legally, <laughs> I'm not suggesting, sure. you know, we have an uprising, but uh, there's a lot less billionaires in the country. And I think if you reinvested that money um, and, and a state tax, you know, like why, why when Jeff Bezos dies, his kids need to get all that money, like spend it while you're here. So, or, or <laughs> I, you know, I think there's this, you know, super, strong case for you know in you know very unequal societies to implementing these more progressive taxes this is where the money is if you need to make some investments this is where you should get the money and i agree that you know uh, you know this is what should basically happen and you have this administration that puts in in place these these taxes but i think we also need to to already think about one step ahead about the future and basically how do you avoid the next cycle of resentment against these kinds mm -hmm. of administration? And I think it's it's really also about, as as we're as we're saying here, how this money is invested, and how do we track the progress we're making into really increasing uh, the quality of lives of those that we're supposed 
you know, that who are supposed to benefit from these from these policies. And here I'm back to this whole, you know, discussion about indicators. What's a good indicator for progress? How do we move out of, you know, GDP as the sole indicator of progress? How do we have systems of sharing information where we don't have only the experts in Washington, D.C. or in Paris or in London that are, are going to dictate what is the good, you know, quality of life? And systems where we have a feedback between the local level and the central level about, you know, the information on the ground. Here, on, on that domain, I have to say that, you know, if you think about the quality of the environment, before Trump, the U.S. was, you know, pretty much way ahead of many American countries with very interesting systems of sharing information about where the pollutions are, what types of pollutants, is it a pollution in the ground, in the soil, in the air, in the water, and with the ability for local communities to also report some of the pollutions that they observe or that they measure to the central administration, which is something that we really don't have in European countries. And I think it's really this back and forth of, you know, what's really the state of our living conditions and how is this reported, how is this measured by those who are coordinating these policies that are in the end are going to have an impact on our lives at the local level. We need much more dialogue on that. And I think that here, you know, the digital revolution is a blessing. It can really be something that creates more chaos, that creates more social tension, that's, that creates, you know, more claims of frauds in, in, in any case and, and basically a complete disconnection uh, from the reality of one part of the population. But we can also use that as really this kind of platform that will make us have a better understanding of the you know, living conditions of our constituents. And so this is also how we try to mobilize and use the data in the project that I was mentioning. And a big part of the empirical material of this book is based on the work, work of the, that we're doing at the World Inequality Lab. We're doing it on just, you know, a, a very small subset of indicators that matter. So we're looking at income and wealth inequality and also at carbon inequality. But there's also so many other things that matter. But I think for me, this is also the, the general direction that we should take as researchers, those working in policy analysis, um, and those who are actually elected in, in government. That's the direction that we should take. Use this as something that can make us collectively progress rather than you know, the chaos that we find on Twitter and, or on the social media that is not doing much help uh, uh, to help us to, to, you know, to really solve the problems that we're facing. Okay, that, I think that is a good place to wrap up. Um, yeah, you we got, can keep you, going, but I know you got you've got the uh, the Gramsci down, right? <laughs> you've got you've got you've got the uh, pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the world. It's it's nice to hear the optimism. I got to say, yeah, uh, we're not in, optimistic in, these, in, these, on this in these moments, especially right now. It is nice to hear the optimism, <laughs> and there is a lot of optimism in the book. I got to say that there there there's a lot of positive trends that you know you offer that could perhaps be scaled up and, and distributed worldwide and might might well work um so those are those are uh great things all right um luca thank you so much for coming on uh um, thank to you both real, 
Yeah, real yeah, pleasure. Thank you for the book. Um, everybody should go out and read this book. We're going to uh, heavily promote it on all our terrible social media sites. Um, and yeah, uh, we'd love to have you on again when mm. when um, more things sort of develop on, on these fronts. And hopefully they will with the new administration here and what's yes. you know, also hopefully in, in Europe as well. It'll be a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Some say we don't deserve this earth we walk upon. Some say we don't deserve to breathe the air we pull into our lungs. Yeah, carbon monoxide, acid rain, hate, greed, and selfishness destroy our precious skies, our mother earth. You good people better rise up together, join hands, one heart, one mind. People better rise up soon, because this planet is mine, and this planet is ours, and we have got to live together. I want my planet back. 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 So, great discussion. Yeah, that was great. One of the things that, you know, we talked about in various ways, and Luca sort of gets to the heart of it in his book, uh, is that the way the world is, is based on a series of decisions. And so if that's the case, right. you can just make other decisions. Right? Make other decisions you, can, yeah. you can just change the decisions and have a different world. Um, and, and you know, it's complicated and so on, but sometimes it's as simple as sort of realizing that, that, that yeah. can you know, make you more optimistic, actually. And I think that, that was refreshing. Well, it's always refreshing when you have somebody that's clearly in possession of a crazy deep intellect that yep. is when they talk, you actually can retain it. Well, not so much you, but for me. Uh, and I like guests like that. That was fantastic. I could have yeah. just kept listening. Yeah, no, no, you just learn. But it's also frustrating because you're just like, it seems easy. Why does it have to be so hard? Yeah, he's able to distill. I mean, the book is short. So the book, you know, is like 150 pages. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and yet it's just jam-packed. And, you know, when I first got it, I, I was nervous not nervous i was just kind of like anxious because i was like oh no economics right um this is going to be a nightmare right and he writes so clearly yep, yep. and so he distills like very complex stuff into sort of nuggets that anybody can can understand yeah. uh so it was just awesome okay okay i'd vote um, yeah yeah right <laughs> right why not him? more people like that going into politics um, okay so yeah we're I'm I'm happy to be taking a breather from from the election. Political the yeah, election, no more party the political favors. horse race, it's that over. kind of stuff. You know, um, well, maybe it'll come back when there's a new president. <laughs> we're gonna nudge. Well, we're let's we'll switch it up to something. Yeah. I'm done giving the uh, Republicans advice. Yeah, they're just, they're just they're, they've gone rogue. Yeah, they've been like that for a while. At this point, you know. You know, Lindsey Graham calling to throw out votes and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's too it's much. So, I mean, he's yeah. just joined the, the, the 
the kooks. Yeah. He was always nuts, but yeah. you know, there was a, a, a sh- there was at least a, a costume of right. integrity. Yeah, that that's a good wear. way to put it, right? A costume. Yeah, now he's just exactly. taking it off. Right? It's pretty he has amazing. no clothes. Um, no clothes. Okay. All right. Um, so I'll see you next week, right? Um, yeah. Just me and you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, hey, everybody. So um, some people have done it, but I want to make this pitch again. So if you haven't and you're liking the podcast, first of all, tell a friend. Uh, and second of all, go on Apple uh, Podcasts and give us a review. Right, give us a review. That that gives us more. No, give us a good visibility. review. Good. Okay. Yes. No, you know, don't don't yeah, leave yeah, these people with a yeah, decision. No, no, it's five. Yeah. Don't do yeah. the four. Exactly. Do five. Don't think right. about it. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah. So so do that if you can. Appreciate it, and we'll see you next week. All right. See you next week.